when I went away to school to Phillips Academy, they offered classes in painting. So you had an art history class, uh, which was art history in the morning and uh, painting in the afternoon. They had a studio. So you had a studio class. So that combination of art history and studio probably defines my way of living, I guess, or what I think about life, because I can't work without thinking in a way, and I think in a pretty conventional art historical way uh, about painting, and then I have to go to the studio and make the paintings. So you think and paint, paint and think. Uh, and it was just ingrained in me, uh, uh, and I liked it. But there was one other thing about elite education and, and Andover. It had one other thing besides the overall educational excellence, was the uh, Addison Gallery of American Art. And so we had art history courses. We looked at slides and then walked upstairs and looked at real paintings and really good paintings, too. Talking about Sargent, Winslow, Homer, the real thing. So you saw the real examples of real art. And then you went downstairs and went to work. That was artist and National Medal of Arts recipient Frank Stella, remembering his high school classes at Phillips Academy in Andover. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. For over five decades, Frank Stella has been pushing his art to unexpected places. Born in 1936 in Malden, Massachusetts, Frank Stella's work often transcends boundaries among painting, printmaking, sculpture, and architecture. Arriving in New York City in the late 1950s, Frank Stella reacted against abstract expressionism. Think Jackson Pollock. Stella was a minimalist, drawn to the flatness of the canvas, saying famously that a picture was, quote, a flat surface with paint on it, nothing more, end quote. He was met with almost immediate commercial success and critical acclaim. By the 1980s, Frank Stella had given up minimalism. He was introducing relief into his art, incorporating mixed media and three-dimensionality. From this, he moved to making freestanding sculpture for public spaces and developing architectural projects. Frank Stella's work is represented in major museums and collections around the world, and he remains the only living American artist to be honored with two retrospectives at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And in 2009, he was awarded the National Medal of Arts. I spoke to Frank Stella when he came to Washington, D.C. to receive his award. I began our conversation by asking him to tell me about the arts in New York City when he arrived there in 1958. Well, to me, and I still think it's probably true. It must have been the second greatest time on earth for the, art, <laughs> for the art world. The best time would have been, obviously, just after the Second World War, when the war was over, and there was this turmoil and uh, just sort of bubbling up of excellence as a result of the interaction of the uh, refugees who had come from Western Europe and the Native American talent that was there. And it all came together. And the result of that was the great painting of abstract expressionism. The best way I can explain it is a story that someone told me uh, about, I mean, all the stories in the outworld world living seem to be about Peggy Guggenheim. But anyway, she was helping out Jackson Pollock, and she was going to give him a, a show. 
but you know he's a pretty rough character and the paintings are kind of tough and she was also she was friendly with everybody but she went to Piet Mondrian and she went to Mondrian and she said well what about Pollock and she showed him a couple of his paintings she said I really want to give him a show and he just looked at her and smiled he said you know this is the kind of painting you never have to worry about <laughs> forget your worries <laughs> So Mondrian, and he didn't even know Pollock then. He probably knew him afterwards. But, I mean, all he had to do was see a couple of Pollock's paintings, and uh, it was obvious. Want a Pollock story that doesn't have anything to do with Pollock? Sure. And it's part of the, the literature and everything about it is the struggle between uh, Pollock and Thomas Hart Benton. And, you know, we think of celebrity and everything and famous painters. But as far as I know, and I've just seen a few things, Thomas Hart Benton, who was as famous as you can be as an American artist. I mean, if Thomas Hart Benton painted a new painting, this is in the 30s, I mean, it was on the front page of the New York Times of the reproduction. I haven't seen a, a front page reproduction of an artist unless it sold for a world record or the artist dropped dead or something. But people would say, well, uh, Pollock rebelled against Thomas Hart Benton and you know he was just a hack American regionalist painter and Pollock is the great American abstractionist. But... They put up those paintings in, uh, I forget, on 6th Avenue, I forget which building it is, uh, a big series of Benton's murals. And I must say that everything I thought about Benton and everything, I think they really look good. And they, they, they had to look good to Pollock too, which is why there was a struggle, why he was able to work his way through Benton and fortunately come out on the other side. So it's not possible to struggle with something that's no good and come out good. And it's just another example of what happens over 50 years. Actually, your feelings change and you get more out of it if you're lucky enough to live longer. Well, let's go back to some of your earliest work, your black paintings. You Mm -hmm. were concerned with the flatness. Yes, that's true. Yes, um, there, there was a notion about new painting and modernist painting of that time. And the notion was pretty simple. There was the respect for the flatness of the surface and the respectness for the quality of the materials. So it's all about directness. Now, the issue about the flatness of the surface, well, it's obviously, when you start, the the painting is flat. But they're talking about emphasizing the flatness of the surface in relation to the traditions of the window and perspective that goes back and actually about the, the planar recession and atmospheric qualities of depth in cubism. So there's a notion that you're advancing by emphasizing your surface, your working surface, and by emphasizing your working materials, uh, the paint itself. Now, who's to say, I mean, uh, you know, abstract expression, I'm sure they they rubbed a lot of paint, the Kooning's a great thing, but I mean, there's plenty of paintwork in in Monet or Velazquez and everything, so nothing is in that sense that new. But the issue of flatness might be new in the sense that wanting to bring it to the surface, I think, and I think it's not about the painting itself. The, The truth to materials, I think, is interesting. And to me, one of the most wonderful things about it is it it probably should have happened in Pollock, but it did happen with Helen Frankenthaler, which is if you're very true to your materials and very true to your surface, you get the opposite of what you probably should have gotten because when the paint in her pieces was absorbed into the surface and the canvas, it made the surface and the material one in a way that wasn't really flat. It created a not exactly an optical atmosphere, but it created a a softness and a recession that was 
something that hadn't been there before. So if you were fighting recession and you were emphasizing the surface, you created something that was in between or new or different that was really wonderful. And that all happened because of following the the directives, the truth to materials, and the emphasis of flatness. But it came out with just really fantastically inventive and great paintings, and uh, particularly of Helen at Frankenthal's. What was your first major show? Uh, the first major show was an exhibition that I, I showed in with two other painters, and it was a show at Oberlin College. I showed three paintings there, uh, one black painting and two so-called pre-black paintings. And it was called Three Young Americans at Oberlin College. It had a catalog and an essay and everything. That was a, it was a professional presentation of my work. It took place, you know, six or eight months after I'd been working. So it was, it was a huge step. And it had an incidental effect or ancillary effect. Uh, for whatever reason, my father decided to step up. He was impressed in some kind of way. And he took the catalog down to the... Malden Public Library and showed it to the uh, librarian and she said oh well we'll take this show here and the Malden Public Library is a is a building by H.H. H. Richardson it's called the Converse Library and Converse's uh, money is in the sneakers and uh, the Converse gave this building and it is a beautiful building and it's the only thing in Malden that's left that's still beautiful and part of the library had a gallery designed by H.H. H. Richardson which was a beautiful space and the show was quite dramatic because cause they had to take the front doors off the uh, library to get the paintings in up to the gallery where there was plenty of room so uh, it made a, a dramatic impression. So I guess I had a little flair for drama right from the beginning. <laughs> Between 1970 and 1973, you created the Polish Village series, which was a big departure for you. That was. Can you describe the series and how you came to create it? I, I can describe it. I can describe it on two levels. The, the most obvious level is what we talked about, flatness. This was a, a, an interest in becoming more involved in relief. So if you have a flat plane, you can put other flat planes in front of it and you get a a relief, which is sort of like a parallel plane relief. And then, of course, you can take those same planes and tilt them and you get a more dramatic uh, sculptural form of relief. So it seemed to me that I could work with a flat version, a kind of modified, straightforward relief version and a more dramatic relief version. And uh, I was interested in uh, giving up the total uh, reliance on the flatness to carry me forward. It was part of a tricky business about thinking about geometry in the sense that the paintings before the Polish village paintings were, as I said, basically diagrammatic, but they were also geometrical, but generally simplified geometric forms. But I had made one group of paintings called Irregular Polygons. Mm -hmm. And it's a really really pretty simple notion, but it turned out to be, historically speaking, if you look back at the drawings that were involved in uh, making abstract shapes that were then turned into paintings, uh, you know, say just, and you imagine a, a black cross floating on a white ground. The notion of this painting would be to imagine the same black cross the same white ground. If you separate the two of them, so you have a a white square and a black cross, and then you hold them in your hand, say they were cut up, and you push them together, you push the black cross 
into the white rectangle. What happens is that instead of getting an example of one thing being on top of another, you create another kind of visual space, which is a space in which the two things fit together. You can see that they fit together, but when it works well, when you get it right, there's a kind of visual tension in which the two forms come together and appear to be spring-loaded. So you get the effect that the black cross that you've pushed into the white square could be expelled. In other words, it could be a projectile coming out of the box or machine of the white square. And so white on white, black on black, that was the tradition. But I knew that this was another way of thinking and uh, looking at the geometry. Uh, And I was pretty interested in it. And I made a, a series of paintings. But I found it hard to go anywhere with it. I don't know why. I sort of gave up on it. And then after I'd gone on to the what were called the protractor paintings and, and those kind of shape paintings, the flatness was sort of was giving up on me, or I was giving up on it. And I started to think about the irregular polygon paintings, and so I began to make drawings, and they began to get more complicated. It was a little bit hysterical for a while. They appeared to me to be more conventional, and in fact, they are more conventional. Somehow I was able to work them and accept it, and they're very close to the work of Eastern European abstract painting. It was in in a more traditional tradition of uh, abstract art. But why the idea of the Polish village? Where did that come from? The reason that it came about in the way that it did was uh, Richard Meyer gave me a a present. I think it was a birthday present. And it it was uh, a book published in Poland, I think in the early 60s, uh, describing having reconstruction drawings and photographs of synagogues in Poland, and probably some in Russia too that were destroyed by the Germans uh, moving across Poland into Russia. And uh, this got me interested in the idea because that was actually the trace of abstraction. Uh, Abstract art developed uh, from Moscow Moscow to Warsaw to Berlin and then back the other way. That was the the root of the development of abstract art in the the beginning, you know, well into the middle of the uh, early 20th century. And that idea of abstraction just stuck in my head. And then the actuality of the drawings of the reconstruction of uh, and how the synagogues were made, I invented a word, I think I invented the word, there certainly can't be this word, interlockingness, <laughs> whatever that means, but it was about the carpentry and about the craftsmanship that went into the joining and building uh, of the wooden synagogues and basically of the structure that was built. Well, it looks as though you're actually building paintings. Uh, that was the result, yes. I, I guess I could have made it all a lot less complicated. Yes, that, that was the result. Because in, in dealing with the issue of the relief, which was a given, I decided that um, I would build a painting and then paint it, yes. Uh, it was about building paintings, which is, it got to be a little tricky because they were intended to be paintings, so I was building paintings. But you were very clear that they were reliefs. They were meant to be yes, seen yes. front on. They look like a lot of architecture. <clears throat> they actually do. And you know where I'm heading because then you'd moved into free form, or freestanding rather, sculpture. Can you talk mm-hmm. about that trajectory? Well, it was pretty long coming, working with the reliefs and everything. But the turning point was becoming interested in sculpture per se. But the real difference was, as ultimately printmaking got really interesting for me working with Ken Tyler, working with Dick Polich at Talix. In both cases, we started very slowly making small things and fooling around. 
But actually, uh, as I got a feeling for what was available in the factory setting or in the printing setting where they really had equipment, it was actually, I guess, a question of becoming comfortable with heavy equipment, I guess, or mechanical equipment. It took me a long time to adjust to the use of it. But once I did, it seemed to work pretty well for me. We have to talk about BMW and the car project, just very briefly. Did you have fun with that? Well, it was fun, uh, but it was very indirect. It was a small program started by, um, anyway, his first name was Hervé. He was a racing driver and an auctioneer in Paris. Uh, Hervé had the idea to have an art car at the Le Mans race, at the 24 Hours of Le Mans. And uh, the first car was Calder. Calder did a car, which was quite nice. And then BMW was satisfied with it. It was just an idea, and they said, okay, it seemed like a good way to get a little bit of publicity when the car wasn't that fast. And, uh, and it seemed like fun. And then I worked on uh, a design I had, which was a fairly simple graphic design, and we cut it up in a lot of pieces. Actually, the design that we did, it took us two or three weeks of a lot of cutting and pasting. Nowadays, on the computer, we could have done it in about seven seconds. <laughs> but it might not have looked quite as nice, but we could... In 1993, you created a series of murals, 10,000 square feet of murals to be exact, for Toronto's Princess of Wales Theatre. How did that come about? I don't know how it happened. Well, look, David Mervish is a kind of miracle maker. I guess there was no plan. That was the beauty of it. The the building was going up, and David said, let's go, I want to do this, I want to do that. And as long as I could keep up to the construction schedule... In other words, if I could make things uh, quickly enough so that they could be installed and fit into the construction schedule, could pretty much, wherever there was blank space, we could put something in it. And you did. And uh, some of it was pretty nice, and David was really pretty easy to work with, and it was in a, a lucky thing about I didn't get rich, and, and David didn't get poor either <laughs> over the projects. Your movement into architecture... I didn't really move into architecture. I made a lot of things that looked like architecture, and, uh, um, and I had a lot of sculpture and relief, and I began to try out uh, some ideas, and I was invited to do uh, work on a, a couple of projects, and I got involved with some very sophisticated engineers and designers. But uh, for one reason or another, the projects never got built. The one that was a real project was for the Groningen Museum in, uh, in Holland, and we had it worked out, and it was complicated, but not, not that big a deal, and it was going to be covered in Teflon. And then some guy said, oh, but what if they stick a knife into Teflon? Which is like saying, yeah, what are you worried about the Teflon covering? But anyway, it was things like that. You had a wonderful show at the Metropolitan Museum of Art called Painting into Architecture. Yes. And that was satisfying enough for me, even though everyone says, well, you didn't actually build anything. I mean, I I worked on a couple of projects that we really could, I know, could have been built, and we even priced them out. Uh, They could could have been built. It had the plumbing, the bathrooms, and all that stuff. They they were buildable. Different rewards, different challenges when you're doing that? You know, it's a a little bit different. It's working partly with other people, and uh, um, I did like it for a while. But then, then it gets frustrating when it never works, and then... I, I just got to build some very sophisticated and very beautiful models. <laughs> so, but I was happy with that. But then I, I don't know what the next step would have been from the model to the reality. Let me ask you something. What was the attraction to abstraction for you? 
Uh, it's probably not a bad question. There was none. Um, there was no alternative to abstraction for me. You know, I was born in 1936. There was a, a kind of polarity between figuration and abstraction. When that expression of that polarity was uh, shown to me or put in front of me, you know, I just said, well, I like the abstract side. That's what I want to do. That was artist and 2009 National Medal of Arts recipient Frank Stella. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpt from Padded Walls Re-Edit by Floating Spirits from the album Transmit, licensed through Creative Commons. The Artworks podcast is posted on Thursdays at www.arts.gov. And now you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on Beyond Campus and search for the National Endowment for the Arts. Next time, a conversation with playwright and lyricist Jeffrey Sweet. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.